Our reading this morning is from Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 to 13. Okay, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God, the name of the city of my God. The new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And the name I will also write on them, my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Good morning. Uh, purely for educational purposes, I've been watching a new TV program over the last few evenings on Amazon Prime. It's called The World's Toughest Race. Bear Grylls um, might be familiar to him and to some of us. Uh, Bear Grylls hosts this crazy program that we're only two or three episodes into. Um, what happens is there are 60 teams from around the world, varying ages and stages of life. And for some crazy reason, they think it's a good idea to do what Bear and the organizers say. So, in the first 24 hours, with hardly any sleep, if, if any opportunities at all, but to hardly any sleep with only the food that you can carry, they have so far traveled about 80 miles, um, but not in the comfort of a car. It's 80 miles on sea, uh, through jungle, on paddleboard, boat, and bike. Um, that's just the first 24 hours. Uh, when you go on in this series, there are people jumping into a ravine that is reaching flood level. Um, some people think it's a better idea to camp out and let the uh, storm pass. Bikes break. Um, people get discouraged. People get affected by the heat. Um, and all of this is done um, not because they've been coerced into it, but because they want to do it. It's an eco challenge that people that have done marathons and triathlons think this is a great idea to invest time and energy to risk their lives um, because they want to prove something to themselves that they can endure. They want to prove something to themselves that they can set, be set this great task, um, competing against nature and against the imagination of Bear Grylls and the race organizers to go through tremendous challenges and it won't overcome them. That's the aim of the race, I think. I don't know who will win. Don't spoil it by texting me if you know. But there's a funny thing that happens in our culture. 
we love setting ourselves the limits. We love setting ourselves the, the goals of a marathon, of a half marathon, of a 5K, of a couch to 1K, whatever it may be. We love setting ourselves the boundaries to endure, to succeed, to go further than someone else that we know or love. But that's not the definition of endurance when it comes to the book of Revelation. We've been seeing that over recent weeks, that as we've looked at the different letters, there are seven of them in chapters two and into chapter three of the book of Revelation. Christians are called to endure, to endure tremendous challenges that are not imposed on themselves out of choice, but because they're facing real, real persecution for the name of Jesus. We're looking at these churches you can see on the screen in modern day Turkey in Asia Minor, and these seven churches receive a letter from Jesus, from the lips of Jesus, who looks into their hearts and assesses their strengths and weaknesses. And today we're looking at the book of Philadelphia. These are seven churches, these seven letters that you can see on the screen now. They, Jesus is um, assessing and judging and ministering to his churches. Here they are around Asia Minor. And as we look at the next slide as well, you can see that uh, these seven letters are written with different aims to different churches for their maturity and for their growth. And they're about to face a major persecution. The Emperor Trajan was in charge of the Roman Empire from 98 to 117 AD. And in his reign, it was illegal to be a Christian. If you were suspected of uh, the Christian faith, you'll be called before the imperial governor. You'll be called before Rome and asked if you were, and if you said that you were, that you followed Jesus, you were given a choice. Would you recant? Would you say no to Jesus and yes to the gods of Rome? Would you say no to Jesus and yes to the authority of the emperor? You were given a choice to confess that Rome is Lord or you'd face the mouth of the lions. Those were the two choices. Would you confess that Jesus is Lord and face the mouth of the lions, or would you confess that Rome is Lord, that Trajan is a God's appointed heir on the earth, and then you would have your life? And historians tell us that with calmness and with endurance and with fortitude, the Christians made the Roman emperor marvel because they refused to confess that Rome is Lord and they profess that Christ is Lord as they face their death. This book of Revelation was written to Christians who were about to face extreme persecution at the hands of Nero, where they were made into human candles. And to these churches, Jesus wants to encourage them to endure. That's the key to the book. That's the key to the letter as well, to the Philadelphian church. Look at verse 10. He looks at this small church and says, I can see right into your heart and I can see that your people have endurance, not of a race around Fiji, but you are enduring in the face of severe persecution. Verse 10, since you have kept my command to endure patiently. That's really the key to the, to the whole book, not just the letter to the Philadelphian Christians, but the whole book of Revelation is written to Christians not just in Turkey, but throughout the ages to endure for Jesus. Will you stand fast? Will you stand firm in the face of persecution at school, as you go away to university, as, as you face suffering, will you endure? Will you take Jesus at his word? 
or will you exchange his loving rule for another? That's the call to the Christian church throughout the ages. And Jesus says very clearly to the church at Philadelphia, here are three truths. I want to tell you about a door, a key and a pillar. A door, a key and a pillar. Let's look at those three things. This is what we need to grasp if we're to endure in the 21st century, just as Christians have done in every century. Look at verses 8 to 10. Jesus assesses the church at Philadelphia and he says, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door. And in verse 10, if we put those two sentences together, I've placed before you an open door. You have kept my command to endure patiently. Here's the first thing that you and I need to do if we, like the Christians in Philippi, are to endure in the face of trial and suffering. We need to see we need to see that something that the world can't, and that is that suffering has a purpose. Christians can see that suffering has a purpose. Here's what's interesting. When Jesus uses this phrase, see, I've placed before you an open door, that, that phrase is used in other places in the New Testament, in 1 and 2 Corinthians and Colossians as well, to talk about evangelism. To talk about evangelism, Jesus is assessing the church at Philippi, and he says, I'm going to create for you an open door. I'm going to create for you an opportunity to speak of my loving authority and rule, to speak of my return. I'm going to open a door for you so you can speak and profess my name. But here's what's interesting. What's interesting to me is what Jesus says as he assesses the church. Verse 8, I know your deeds. And you might expect that to follow, saying, I know your deeds and I know your resources and I know that you can do this Go and get to it. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, verse 8, I know your deeds. I know that you have little strength. Literally, this means that you're small. There might be 20 or 30 of you, perhaps, in number. You have little resources. You have little energy. I know you've got little strength. I know you've got little resources, but I'm going to do something significant for you. I'm going to open a door and give you new opportunities to speak of my name to people that desperately need to hear. But you're small. But here's the second thing that interested me. Look at verse 9. In addition to their small resources, their small energy, they're small in number, so they're not very plausible as a church. In sentence 9, Jesus says, I know you're being persecuted. I know that there is a, a synagogue of Satan. That's a culturally appropriate term if ever I've heard it. I know that there's a synagogue that opposes you. Now, we're not to imagine um, a church on one side of a street corner and a synagogue of equal size on the other side of the street corner. They're not just in their competition of the religious marketplace. If you look at the historians, they would say that in Philippi, there was a community of Jewish people, Jewish believers, maybe two, maybe 3,000. This is a, a civic center who had resources who had a plausibility of number and size and they used their civic influence to oppose a small church of 20 to 30 people so here we've got a hundredfold different of size and resources and energy and Jesus is revealing a principle here he says I'm going to open a door for you I know you've got limited resources and energy but I'm going to do something significant for you and emit amongst you and admits you in the future so that those who oppose you 
will realize through your endurance in the face of suffering that I love you. That's what it says in sentence nine. It won't be long. As hard as it seems to speak of my name, to say that Jesus died and rose and is ascended. Although the Jewish believers do not believe in Messiah, that Jesus is Lord and King, although they oppose you, I'm going to do something in their hearts as you endure in the face of suffering and persecution to open a door into their lives so that they will realize that I love you, sentence nine. You may look so insignificant, so small, the hostility may be so great as if the temperature is being turned up to the maximum. But persevere, because I will do something right in your midst. And those people that oppose you, their hearts will be melted so that they will be your friends. Now, how's that going to happen? What's God going to do? God has to do something because they're so small and insignificant. This is what God will do. Look at verse 10. I will enable you to patiently endure the closed doors in your life. How you approach suffering, church in Philadelphia, how you approach persecution is so important. And through your patient endurance, through your dependency in me and your smallness and your limitedness, I'm going to open a door and do something significant. I'm going to grow your number. I'm going to do something significant for my sake and my glory and my fame and my name amongst you as you patiently endure. Do you know that's what suffering is? We thought last week suffering can be described as a furnace in the Bible. But here's another way. Suffering, suffering to the church of Philippi is a series of closed doors. It might be suffering in your life as a closed door of a relationship or an opportunity or an ambition. Uh, an opportunity to serve that you thought would be fruitful and God seems to close that door and you appear powerless. And uh, Jesus says to each one of us, the way you handle suffering, the way you handle closed doors, has the power to change you to become more like the people that God would have us be. God's suffering that he sends into our lives, the closed doors that he is behind, are never accidental. They're never purposeless, and a Christian can see that. may not understand it. It may take hindsight and looking back to see what God is doing in our lives. But number one, the first principle from this passage for a Christian to understand how to endure patiently is to see that God is behind the door. God is behind the closed doors of persecution and suffering and a frustrated opportunity in our perspective. That's the first principle. But here's the second one. Suffering can make you into a humble person. It can soften your spirit, but it doesn't always. And that's why we need to see the key. The first principle is the door. The second principle from this passage is the key. Here's the essence for the church at Philippi and for the whole book of Revelation and the key to the Christian life. Suffering, closed doors, troubles, do not automatically make you into a person who's more like Jesus. They can make you more compassionate and tender. They can make you more humble and servant-hearted, but they don't always. They can make you hard-hearted and more bitter. They can make you more stubborn and more self-centered. They can make you more humble. They can make you harder. But suffering always has a purpose in the Christian life. And if you can understand that, if you can grasp that, 
then that's the key to endurance. Look at verse 7. Verse 7. When you acknowledge that Jesus holds the key, that he's behind the door of suffering, that will enable you to endure. Verse 7 is this phrase, I, I have the keys. It's a very significant phrase that I don't think we really understand. I mean, back in those days, imagine this. Back in those days, if you were someone of poor or average income, the house that you lived in had no doors. Just imagine that. They had no doors. You can see one on the screen. They might be a, a little bit of material that would cover an entrance to your home, but the vast majority of homes that you and I would live in would be thoroughfares for other people to get to where they slept, to get to where they ate. If you were someone who was very, very wealthy and affluent, you might have a door that looked like this. If you were someone with an extreme amount of resources and money, you would have a, a locked door. You would have a key. So if you were the king or the queen, if you owned a realm or a, a kingdom, you would give that key to someone that you trusted, maybe a prime minister type figure, and everything would be locked away. Your linen, your food, your private rooms, your front door. Only one person would have the authority of the king. Only one person would have the key. And here in verse 7, Jesus claims on the back of this marvelous revelation of his authority and rule and power and might and majesty from chapter 1. Jesus says, I have the keys of David, which means I have absolute power. I have absolute authority over every aspect of your life. Persecution is coming, church in Philippi. But I need to remind you of this. I'm not small. I'm not a small God of your imagination and making. I have authority. But this fleshes out. If Jesus has authority, if he has the key, that means something very unpalatable in our Western mindset. That means you and I are not in charge of our lives. You did not choose your gender. You did not choose the color of your skin. You did not choose your family. You might be able to choose your friends. You did not choose your talents. Everything you own and possess is a gift from a loving God, from him to you and to me. You're not in charge of your life. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Troubles are a gift from a loving God. They're a severe mercy. You think about the people doing this race that I mentioned to you at the start of this message. People that are going around Fiji on these different um, bicycles and paddle boards and things they've got to construct to go across water and the way they've got to navigate through the, uh, through the forest at night as well as by the warmth of the sunlight. They see where their strengths and weaknesses are. Suffering does that in a unique way. Suffering reveals to us who we are in a way that uh, an easy life does not. You'll never know who you are without the gift of suffering and closed doors. You might think that you're in good shape, and then you run after the bus and you realize that you're not. You might think that you're physically fit, and then a teenage son shows you up. That hasn't happened to me yet, but it will soon. Suffering, trials, persecution, it shows you who you really are in a way that an easy life will not. The way you are when you hear the news of another lockdown, that reveals who you truly are. 
the way you are when a pandemic hits, that reveals something of your character and attitude towards anxiety and uncertainty. The way you are when you face frustration and disappointment and pain, that reveals who you really are in a way that uh, with the sun on your back and uh, an easy life does not. There's no way to know who you really are until you face closed doors and trouble and hardship and persecution. But here's the second thing, without trouble and closed doors, you'll never know what really lasts. It's not until our lives are in jeopardy that we realize how fragile we are. If you've built your life around money and opportunity and hopes and dreams and holiday, when they get frustrated, that really, you realize who you really are. You realize what you live for. If all your effort and energy is about accruing a big pension pot, then what happens when a financial crisis hits? You, you realize what's really important. And God, in his grace, sends severe mercies into our lives to reveal who he is and to show us that we're not in control. I mean, 2020 is not an accident. God is sovereign and kind over all things and over all years of human history. We are very perplexed as to why God has allowed COVID to enter our history. But it's not ours, it's his. It's not our lives under our authority and under our control. We are sheep under his loving, shepherding hand. Whenever we build our lives on anything apart from him, it's like a sandcastle against the strength of the sea. And a tide is flowing and it's a severe mercy that God shows us what lasts and shows us that he's in control. But that's not all. I mean, who does God think he is? This is who God has revealed himself to be. God has all power over us because of who he is. He has the keys. What right does God have to hold the keys in his hands? The Bible says at least two things. God has rightful control over us, over all history, over 2020, and over the future because of who he is. Who is he? We're built for him. He made us and he's created for us. We're created for him and our true satisfaction will only be found to the degree that we know and enjoy our relationship with him through his son. I mean, think of a lady jeweler. When a lady jeweler creates something in her studio, she pours something of her heart and soul and creative energy and imagination into that item of jewelry. Think of a gardener. Think of them as they go out and put their stamp and their fingerprints and their sweat and their energy into that garden. And now think of a God who loves you and who put all his creative forces and energies into making you and I into the world in which we live that we've ruined because of sin. God has rights over us because of who he is. He's, he's a creator and he's the maker. But that's not all. Jesus has a right to the keys of your life and the keys of history not because of who he is, but because of what he's done. Christianity is different from every other religion in the world. I mean, every other religion says that their God holds the keys. Their God has authority. Their God has power. But Christianity is different because Christians alone can say that our God has authority. He has power, but he's not distant. He has authority and we can have an approach to suffering that no one else does because Jesus has the keys. 
But Jesus doesn't just have the keys of all power and authority and might. To stick with the metaphor of a door, Jesus is the only God who knows what it's like to be locked out. He's the only God to know what it's like to be the other side of his father's loving rule and authority as he suffered in our sake. I believe as a Christian, Christians believe because the Bible tells us that Jesus was sent from heaven to earth, the ultimate journey, the ultimate extreme trial to pay for my sins on his shoulders on the cross. He was going to die on the cross outside the city walls of Jerusalem and the night before he was to face the cross and bear the sin of my sin and your sin on his shoulders, the sins of the world on the cross, there was an opportunity for him to escape. There was an opportunity for him to turn his back on the will of his father and to do what any human would do, to say, I don't want this. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus says, I don't want this. But he didn't say, God, you're cruel to me. He didn't say, God, let me out of here. God, let me free. Jesus said something that I never could. I would say, God, get me out of this. But Jesus, on the night before he was betrayed and on the night before he went to the cross, Jesus said, not my will, but yours. A Christian is someone who looks at Jesus and says, if you suffered like that to redeem me, then I will endure for you. Because I trust you, I will live under your loving hand because you have the keys, because they're rightfully yours. But not just a distant power and authority. You know what it's like to be locked out. You know what it's like to face suffering in a way that I never will. I mean, here are three alternatives to suffering, the world in which we live. You, you could be a romantic. You could be a romantic who looks out into the world and says, life shouldn't be hard. And so when you suffer, when you face the loss of a loved one, all you've got is despair. You've got no answers because life shouldn't be like this. You could be a stoic. You could be someone with a stiff upper lip, a true English man or woman. And when suffering comes, it means nothing to you. Or you could become a Christian this morning. And a Christian is the only person in the whole world who can look at suffering and not be so disheartened or discouraged there are tears because it's not the way it's supposed to be but there's also hope because jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world but god raised his son vindicated him because he was satisfied with his perfect once and for all sacrifice and because jesus died and was raised to life again so shall every christian be and so christians alone can look at suffering we may not understand the whole picture, I never will, but we can look at suffering with hope because Jesus has authority, he has the keys, but that's not all. There's a door, there's a key, and then there's a the language of a pillar. That's the third principle, a door and a key. So suffering is not the end, we can look at it with hope, we can look at it and we can endure, and we can become pillars. What does that mean? Have you ever been in the middle of an earthquake? I hope you haven't. Maybe you've been in one of those uh, earthquake simulators you get at theme parks. I'm not so keen on theme parks, but for those of you that are, maybe you've been to uh, Paris or you've been to the Americas and you've enjoyed, even at Chessington or Thorpe Park, you've enjoyed one of those uh, simulators of earthquakes. If you're in Philippi, you didn't have to go to a simulator. 50 years before this letter was written was the last huge earthquake that destroyed Philippi. 
It was a, a great city. It was palatial. It was uh, known because of its buildings and its opulence and affluence. But this earthquake was so severe, everything was shaken. Not one pillar was left standing, you could say. And so the uh, citizens of Philippi begged. They asked the emperor of Rome for a huge, uh, a huge loan so that the city could be rebuilt. This is in history. You can check it out. And so when Jesus uses these words about endurance in the face of certain suffering that will come for a period of time, there's this very precious promise that the Christians in Philippi would hear in a different way to us. They were familiar with the houses being destroyed. They were familiar with recent history of a, a loan that needed to be accrued so that their city could be rebuilt. And then Jesus says, verse 12, for those of you that trust me, I will make you pillars in the temple of God. Pillars not of stone, not of marble, but human pillars in my dwelling place. No stone will be needed. No marble will be involved. Jesus would be the foundation stone and upon him and his sufficient life and sufficient death, Jesus would build a new temple where he would dwell right in the midst of. I mean, imagine the reassurance this was to Christians in Philippi who said, I will make you into pillars that are immovable, that are eternal, that will last, and I will dwell right in the midst of you. What a promise to cherish for those Christians. But it's not just that. Notice verses 12 to verse 13, three times. They're not just pillars. They will bear the name of God. The triple name of God, the, the heavenly Jerusalem, the Jesus himself, bearing his name as King and loving Lord. They're God's people in God's city, God's citizens in his forever family. Heaven and earth will they be joined together with him forever. What a comfort to know that security. No earthquakes there. No uh, need to get a dowry or resources from another emperor. This is the reward for those who endure patiently in the face of suffering and real persecution to a degree that we, I pray, will never know or have to endure. What does it mean to endure? Does it mean to uh, bomb round Fiji in unlimited time? Does it mean to win a race? No. It means patient endurance, trusting Jesus' promises and living a life of faith in his resources and by the indwelling power of his spirit. I don't know what it means, suffering in general, but I can live as a person of hope because of what Jesus has won for me. One day suffering will end. One day freedom, like a cat running out into the wild, will be a reality for you and for me because Jesus came down from heaven and took into himself the suffering that you and I deserve. The penalty for our sin has been paid for. So beyond the grave, there is real hope and lasting joy and eternal treasures because we will be with him. It won't be an embodied spiritual existence. It will be real, concrete, eternal reality with the one we love. And I'm jealous of Jean this morning because now faith is no more for her. Sight is real. And it's so true for every Christian. All that happens when a Christian dies, says D.L. Moody, is that their address is changed. And Jesus says to the church at Philippi and to you and me this morning, there is a door I'm behind every moment of trial and suffering. But I have a key and it's limited because of my power and authority.
And for those who endure, there's a crown of life and you'll be pillars in my new dwelling place. So Jesus says, verse 13, to me and to you, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches.